The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you're tuned in to Cambridge 105 Radio and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, your fortnight, your fortnightly frolic through the landscape of films, big and small, with our expert critics. So nestle somewhere warm on this actually rather nice November afternoon and get the skinny on what is and maybe isn't worth your time this week. My name's Lorcan O'Neill and with me today is Emma Marchin. Hello. Henry Jordan. Hello. And Matthew Taylor. Hi, thanks for having me on. Who have all ventured into the cinemas and, well, their sofas to catch the, all the latest in what the film studios have to offer. Kicking off with the bittersweet return to Wakanda when the kingdom is under threat from a new enemy in the sequel to the wildly successful Black Panther. Uh, Harry Styles is back just a month after his much-discussed performance in Don't Worry Darling, an Amazon Prime scandalous period drama My Policeman. Sherlock's rambunctious sister is back for another set of mystery solving in Enola Holmes 2. We're going back to the trenches in the latest adaptation of Eric Maria Remarque's harrowing World War I action drama, All Quiet on the Western Front. We're going to dip a toe into the ever-growing phenomenon of the Netflix feel-good festive romance with uh, Falling for Christmas, uh, starring Lindsay Lohan. And we end the show with a thoughtful meditation on what it means to be alive with Bill Nighy in Living. So let's get started and take a moment for the passing of a king. After the tragic passing of Chadwick Boseman, who rose to international acclaim when he took the mantle of Black Panther in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the sequel likewise revolves around the whole left and the hearts and politics of his home in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Ryan Coogler returns to helm this action adventure starring Angela Bassett, Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke as the citizens of Wakanda who must ward off a new threat of intervening world powers and the vil villainous Namor. Um, Emma, does the supporting cast step up to the plate uh, without the previous film's lead? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, you know, I I wasn't as big a fan of the first Black Panther as so many people were. I don't. It, it's not my favourite um, Marvel movie, but um, <clears throat> I think obviously it must have been incredibly difficult to have come to. You know, there was a plan for this movie, and and due to the tragic passing of Chadwick Chad Boseman, that couldn't happen. So you have to bring it in. And obviously, speaking as a mother and a woman, I'm all, I mean, all hail, the, all hail the matriarchy in this one. Angela Bassett is awesome as ever. I think Letitia Wright brings a certain, there's a real feline physicality to her, which I really enjoyed in this. Um, Lupita Nyong'o has a little bit more to do in the last one. Um, and also, you obviously, you have Tinoch Huerta coming in as our new sort of the, the shades of grey baddie, if you like, as Namor, the, the, the king um, from to um, Toka, Tokala, Toka, that, the, the city, the, 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 the underwater city, and he comes in as well. And he's got it. It is, it's long. It's pretty messy, but I did find some real moments of beauty in it. And it is obviously a film about as much about losing somebody as it is about you know moving on the Marvel franchise. Okay. Well, Henry, do you agree? Is this the rare Marvel film with heart? Um, well. I don't agree with that. I do kind of agree with what Emma was saying in that this is a messy film. Um, I think there is kind of, there is a lot going on and basically I can't imagine anyone's going to love this film. I can't imagine anyone's going to hate this film. It feels like people are going to just kind of 
slip either side of that line or like, yeah, it was all right, or like, nah, it wasn't that good. Because there is so much going on, it's just going to be a case of, does the stuff that you like in this stand out from the stuff that you don't like in this? Because this film has to be so much, and part of that is just the kind of necessary and unfortunate context of the making of this film, but... You kind of go in and you think, all right, so is this is this a tribute to Chadwick Boseman? Is this them setting up who the next Black Panther is? Is this them moving on the MCU? Is this more world-building for Wakanda in a Black Panther sequel? Is this, like, setting up further stuff in the universe? What, what are we doing with this film? And the answer is yes. It's every single one of those. And that's where my problem is. This film is, like, two, two and a half hours over that even. And it, it kind of felt quite boring for a lot of it. I left and I just thought, I don't really know what's happened for the last two and a half hours. I couldn't tell you much of anything. I think that for me is just the issue. It kind of, where the original Black Panther, like Emma, I'm not crazed on it, but it has those moments that stand out, like the kind of world building surrounding Wakanda is really interesting. That stands out, whereas in this one you just think, I don't know what the point was for this and nothing kind of grabbed me. There's no, no moment that is that exciting in this one. Okay, so we got two points from Messi and one points for kind of nice and pretty. Um, Matt, do you think that I'm, I'm I haven't actually seen this film? I'm going to take a wild guess and say that there's more than one tribute to the passing of um, Chadwick Boseman. Do you think that kind of sen- sentimentality will make people more forgiving of any potential flaws in the film? Oh, absolutely, it will. I mean, it's impossible to separate this from Chadwick Boseman and his role in the Marvel universe. Um, I've been to three films in my life where people have clapped at the end. This was one of them, along with Les Mis and Joker, and I think that there's no way that would have happened if not for the sort of touching tribute at the end. I'm sorry, people clapped at the end of Les Mis? (laughs) This is done. Well, it was over. (laughs) Wow. People people think they're at the (laughs) theatre. That that makes more sense. Okay, come on, sorry. So, so, yeah, I mean, Chadwick Boseman, there's a very classy tribute to him with the way that they do the opening credits a bit of a twist on the sort of standard big marvel text floating in that you could feel i saw this in a packed cinema you could feel people sort of responding to that in their silence if that makes sense and and then at the end you have a sort of montage of chadwick that actually reminded me of the end of the twilight movies (laughs) although (laughs) potentially with a bit more emotional resonance in this case but, yeah, I think the film definitely gains a lot of um, forgiveness from people. People are willing to forgive its flaws because they want to enjoy Chadwick's memory, it, if that it, makes sense. Yeah, it's almost like like you, like you were saying, there is so much world-building because obviously you have in this... Domin- is it Dominique Thorne who's playing Riri? Who- this is going to be Disney's new Ironheart, isn't it? So there's a lot of setting up for this. This is going to be the new Disney Plus TV show. So she's kind of like, there's, a, there's an Iron Man aspect to the to the machine she's building. This is the girl that sort of wants to be, you know, the, the king is trying to kill her and they just protect her to all intents. But it is, there, there are action set pieces which are by no stretch of the imagination any good at all and you have the and you have uh, you have martin freeman in i never enjoy martin freeman in marvel films <laughs> so that's the kind of thing yeah and and julia louis dreyfus pops up as valentina but she's not in it nearly enough i don't think because she's fun it's but it, it it's also this film about grief and about and i think letitia wright in particular in particular does a really strong performance of showing the anger and the frustration and and eventually the acceptance of of grief, and I think it, I, I think it does a good job in in holding that heart, but not a particularly good job 
in the action set pieces, although there are some really pretty bits underwater. I'd like to respectfully disagree about the action set pieces. I actually enjoyed them a lot more than the standard Marvel fare, purely because it felt like there was a lot more grounded action as opposed to the usual Marvel CGI vest that these films usually end with. I did actually enjoy the last battle, I will say that. The last hand-to-hand combat battle, I did things very good. But by that point, I was maybe in here over the head by two hours and 35 minutes. But also, the last battle is itself diluted, watered down, if you will, (laughs) with this other, like, big set piece that's going on at the same time. So you have this, you know, one-on-one hand-to-hand battle that you go, yeah, this works, this has emotional stakes... That's going on at exactly the same time as 800 CGI figures just kind of slapping against each other. Yeah. And that's the film. <laughs> that's yeah. the film. Well, that was the issue I had. I kind of... The, the ending of this one sounds like the issue I had with the first film, where it's like I loved the setup of, like, an African James Bond intercepting deals, going behind the back of the CIA, yada, yada, yada. They dropped that almost immediately in favour of animated rhinos and magic, <laughs> magic trains. Um, does this is this just full hog fantasy? Yes, I think I would say yes, it is. But I would say again because I think it won that Black Panther did win the Oscar for best costumes for the first one, and the costumes again are amazing in this. I think the costumes and the hair and makeup are phenomenal, and I really that that was, and that's not something I say very often about Marvel films, particularly. There's one issue I actually had with this film, which might be a little bit unpopular is I, I didn't really like the sort of politics of it and the way that Wakanda is portrayed as this utopia when in my opinion it's a sort of authoritarian ethno state I mean does Wakanda allow immigration does Wakanda take refugees uh, what about all the people who aren't happy being ruled over by a monarchy where are these people but I mean, Marvel films don't really go into any of that. Yeah, I think I think at the end of the first one, there was kind of a quick brushing over. It's like, oh, we'll start doing some things to be, <laughs> use our power nicely, but it doesn't sound like that's carried over. Um, I think Kevin Feige, the head behind the, all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films, has said this is definitively the end of Phase 4. Does it feel like the end of Phase 4 I, for anyone? I have no idea what phase <laughs> we're in, to be honest. So what, what did, was Phase 4 the one that started with... Black Widow, I believe. Right. So Black Widow till now apparently is the post-end game. It's not necessarily Marvel's fault, is it? But Phase 4 seems to be really dominated by COVID, I guess, right? Mm. Well, so they, a lot they, of these they, ones... They made the decision to do a lot of TV as well. Yeah. It's cheaper, I guess. Well, I mean, what you've got to think about it with Marvel is that you had Thanos and everything was building to Thanos for so long... But we've almost had, I think we've probably had more hours of storytelling post-Thanos if you count all the TV shows, and it's all kind of building to nothing. Like, you've introduced another villain, where was he when all the other stuff was going on? But where's the the overarching point of any of this now? Yeah, here, here. I've, I've, I've found it very hard to get emotionally invested with um, the Marvel phases post-Endgame, to be honest. Endgame came to me at the end of a very sort of personal mm. and personal film journey. I think I've talked about this before on this show. You know, my kids grew up sort of during the whole, the, the beginning of Marvel from Iron Man, well, they, they, were, they were born a bit later than that, but yeah, from Iron Man all the way through to Endgame. And so that was incredible. And I, I think they're struggling to find the heart now following Endgame. Does, uh, just to close out, does, does the film kind of given that it doesn't feel like the end of a phase four, could people watch this as just kind of a standalone film or just as the sequel to Black Panther? I think it works as the kind of, as a Black Panther sequel. I think that above else is kind of where the film sits pretty comfortably. There's references to like Infinity War and Endgame, but those are two of the highest grossing films of all time, Mm. along with the original Black Panther. So the chances are that if you've seen Black Panther, you've probably at least seen those two, and that's going to fill in pretty much anything else. 
other than that, I don't, you know, it doesn't have to have its place in the MCU, but it does kind of sum up the whole phase four thing of us having the, like, post-snap clarity of, like, what are we doing here? Like, where are we going from here? What is this? And all everyone kind of suddenly being very unsure about the MCU. Okay. Well, if you're, if you're a fan of big action, at least, or a fan of the first Black Panther, it sounds like it's worth watching. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is a certificate 12A and is playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. Next, we're off to Brighton with a Bobby caught in a compromising position. To all of us. To all of us. All Cheers. Of us. Cheers. Cheers. I want you to be my wife. This love is all-consuming. Based on the... Oh, no, no. Uh, when an aged couple accepts an old friend, Patrick, into their home to care for it, it stirs up memories from 40 years prior when policeman Tom, played by Harry Styles, had his romantic loyalty split between his fiancée and Patrick. Uh, Matt, it's a period drama about conflicting needs. The conflicting needs of... Uh, three people uh, were you invested in this love triangle if you can call it that I really struggled to find a way into this movie um, for me the framing device of them being 40 years on and reminiscing about what happened 40 years ago just struck me as it kind of just drew me out of actually connecting to the story because it felt like, well, if you were that bothered by it, why have you not got in touch in the previous 40 years? Why why are we having this jump forward in time? I, I didn't think the performances really had the chemistry that you'd need to sell a sort of love triangle. And I, I didn't think Harry Styles is really up to it. I didn't really get why he's in a movie like this. I mean, he's, he's a huge sort of charismatic megastar, but he's sort of playing a kind of uh, almost blank slate in this movie. So... No, I didn't really think that the performances did enough for me to invest. Uh, Emma, the uh, script's written by um, Ron Nyswater, uh, most famous for writing Philadelphia with uh, Tom Hanks and The Painted Veil about a strained marriage. Um, he has experience with both uh, LGBTQ plus stories and frayed marriage stories, so surely having this guy combine both into one would make it better than the sum of its parts. Good Lord, I had no idea that he wrote Philadelphia. You asked me, you asked me that question, I didn't quite know. I was like, why? Why is Morgan leaving Philadelphia? Because Philadelphia is, is, you know, a, a really decent film, and this is far from a decent film. I only just watched Don't Worry Darling about two days ago, and from that I can definitively say Harry Styles is no triple threat. There is no need to worry. <laughs> the guy can sing, the guy can dance, the guy can, you know, play the heck out of a out of a stadium, but my goodness. I mean, I know in Don't Worry Darling there's reasons for his shonky accent, but in this, his, the, the way he talks, it's really bizarre the way he finished his words, the way he talks. It takes, it, it really took me out of it, and it's one of the dreariest love triangles I've <laughs> ever seen. I didn't care about any of these people. Again, Emma Corrin obviously posted, you know, I've only really seen her as Diana in the Crown, which was a, you know, which was a very striking performance, shall we say, but it's hard to, to know if that is because she's an, sorry, they're an excellent actress or whether or not it was just a very striking sort of imitation of a of a real person. She, They did not speak to me in this either. And I really like Gina McKee and Linus Roach, 
and Rupert Everett, of course, popping mm. up as well. But he, you know, in, it, yeah, he doesn't get his chance to be. He doesn't really get to. Yeah, he doesn't get to do. Out of a chair. Exactly, you know. So I, it, it, it just, oh, honestly, it was so turgid, and the colour palette was so dreary, and it just was miserable. Oh wow! I'm sorry. See, uh, maybe I'm biased, but I, I'm often disappointed by kind of uh, gay relationships portrayed in cinema being very neutered, even something like Moonlight or Call Me By Your Name. It's it's still kind of shying away. This film does not shy away at all. Does it, does it like, was it refreshing for anyone to see, I don't know, a bit more kind of on-screen? There's a lot of on-screen sensuality between uh, Patrick and Tom in this film when they're younger. Yeah, but it would have worked better maybe if they had more chemistry, do you think? Mm. Do you think? I mean, we, we just reviewed Bros on the last... Show. Oh, I see, yeah. And Bros is also does not hold back in, in terms of showing a, a fair amount of homosexual sex on on screen, and this as well. You're right. There is a lot of there's a lot of there's nudity. There's there's a. I did enjoy the bit where they went to Venice, probably because I was it just the, the color palette lifted a bit, and maybe they were having more fun because they got together. So they they do have this this rather lovely idyllic trip to Venice, but I just wasn't like Matt said. I was not convinced by any that any of these people really cared for each other yeah just wasn't really ever invested it had never really believed this as a relationship that would have stood the test of time you wouldn't still be thinking about this 40 years later because it just seemed so inconsequential and boring something else that didn't really work for me was the whole policeman aspect because i thought going in part of the appeal was meant to be uh, the tension of working in the police and being a sort of secret homosexual but then were the police particularly homophobic or was that just they were just the tools of the state i mean it was against the law and they were just enforcing that they weren't particularly any more homophobic than any of the rest of society potentially well yeah that's trying to trying to drum up as much kind of depth out of the plot as they, as they could again i i thought it was pretty good all, all around well um when I went to see Marvel's The Eternals, uh, regretfully, um, little, little did I know that most of my audience was only there for a 30-second sting uh, post-credits when Harry Styles shows up. And my God, did that audience light up for those 30 seconds. And then, obviously, Harry Styles was in... Um, Harry Styles being the reason he's in the post-credits scene in The Eternals. And then, obviously, all the drama that went through Don't Worry Darling. Haven't heard really anything about this, despite Harry Styles' involvement, and it's quite explicit... Why do we think that is? is it- I mean, I don't think you can overstate his appeal. I mean, my wife is a huge Harry Styles fan. If if I talked about other women the way she talked about Harry Styles, <laughs> she'd probably divorce me. <laughs> but you just think, why is he in this film? He's going to be drawing in huge numbers of people to watch it who just aren't going to get anything from it. He needs to be in a sort of frothy rom-com, I think. I have a theory about this, which is, of course, he is, after all, from... A manufactured boy band, okay, the most successful manufactured boy band, apart from maybe K-pop, I suppose, of all time. And I just think that maybe he—he's—he's—there there are agents around him who are telling him what to make and what to do. And so maybe they thought this was going to be a more exciting and more edgy film than it, than it's turned out to be. But perhaps, and this is a good thing, in 2022, we need more than just the story of an illicit love affair starring, you know, one of the biggest pop stars on the planet. We need it to actually have a decent script and a half and a half decent story and to look nice. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Lord. <laughs> oh, I, I'm not that passionate. I was. I think I went in with very low expectations, and I came out with. I thought it was fine. Um, Matt, you kind of mentioned that the, the framing device didn't do anything for you. Did, did the like the the older 
the character, the, the framing device with all the characters looking back and regret and all that kind of stuff add anything? Or would you prefer it just a straight period drama? I think I probably would have got more invested in it. But you obviously have to have the framing device because this is where the sort of twist, if you can say it's a twist, comes. Although it's pretty blinking obvious, you know, the word. So, and you're meant to obviously, there's a, there's a scene at the end where obviously Gina McKee and, and Linus Roach playing the older Marion and Tom and she sort of almost comes out with all this stuff that she's meant to have been harbouring for 40 years but she does it in such a deadpan and emotionless manner that I, I just was incredulous that this, it, it just doesn't feel real that these people would have stayed together for 40 years. And I don't know. So, it's one, of the, one of the things I like about it is that they're all horrible people. Like I don't, I'm not really sure if you're supposed to like any of them, but the fact that they're all kind of horrible, it's like kind of like a hateful eight thing where it's just like, it's kind of along for the ride. Because like, they all do horrible things, potentially the wife character more than anyone else. Um, but did you think we were supposed to like these characters and like revel in how kind of... I, I think we were supposed to like them. I mean, the, the, I absolutely love watching films with hateable characters. For example, Filth with James McAvoy is one of my favourites, mm. and he's absolutely disgraceful in that. But these characters I hated, but, oh, I mean, I really hated Harry Styles' character because every time he opened his mouth, I just thought, you're a hypocrite, you're just a right-wing idiot, and you just deserve everything you get. But I just think, well, I'm not enjoying seeing their interactions. I don't like them, so I don't care if it works out for them. So then, what am I getting out of this? Yeah, I would agree. I don't think you're meant. It's not. They're not particularly nice characters. But if you liked them more, then you would be more invested in. I mean, I I, I cry at the drop of a hat for heaven's sake. And I wasn't even remotely moved by this. And I, you're meant to be. It is a melodrama. You know, it's a 1950s melodrama about repression and love and 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 you know and there's violence. But oh my goodness. Oh, well, Sorry. I, I was satisfied by the end anyway. Um, my Policeman is an unflinching certificate 15 uh, and it's streaming on Prime. Now, war, what is it good for? Dialogueless uh, trailer there because we were talking about All Quiet on the Western Front, um, the German language new war drama from Saxony born director Edvard Berger, uh, bringing us Eric Remarque's fictional account of a German soldier during the Great War, uh, based on the account, based on the, exp the terrifying experience of Remarque himself. Um, Felix Karamer takes the lead, uh, and this is his first credited acting role in this epic story. Um, Emma, I would say this is the, I would say this is the first cinematic adaptation of this novel in 92 years, um, much like the 19, 1979 version, which was a TV movie, this is being released on Netflix, which I think constitutes a TV, I'm sure this got a limited similar, similar release as well, but most people will watch it on, on the streamer. Um, is that a shame in this case? Yeah, it is actually, because I watched this for the, we were talking before we came on. I watched a lot of movies yesterday for this show, and they have been from the sublime to the ridiculous. But this was the last one I watched. I, it, it kept me up until 3 a.m. last night. It is 
a really accomplished piece of filmmaking. It's visually so arresting, so well done. And I think if you can see it on the biggest screen you can, then, yeah, it, it would have been great. I would have loved to have seen this at the cinema because it is a cinematic... It's just, like I say, it's a really accomplished cinematic film. And say, you know, we recently had 1917, didn't we? Which is, you know, but that's, that was that all about that one-shot trick. There's no trickery in this. It is long, it is gruelling, it, I mean, it's intense. And for Felix Kammerer, as playing Paul Barmer, who is our, our lead in this, he, he is such a find. I mean, he has the most... And, and, and again, we talk, we, I was talking about costuming in um, Black Panther. This is very different, obviously, but the amount of... Um, variety they managed to find but in those colours of the trenches which is obviously just wet and grey and dismal and beige but the, what they, the, the, the levels they find in there or the levels that Edward Berger or whoever his cinematographer is, it is just so good to look at so from that reason alone I wish I'd seen it in cinema. Yeah no from, from the, I haven't seen this one either unfortunately but from the trailers it, it looks if, if nothing but cinematic um the war, war movies tend to always have the same theme: war is bad. Does this does this film have anything new or fresh to say, or is it kind of going through the same old stick? I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily got anything new or or or, or um new to say because, like you say, I believe and and um Henry's going to help me out with this. The book is one of the most famous anti-war books ever written. Would we say written in 1927, I believe, which I haven't read. And I didn't even really... I just knew the, the phrase all quiet on the Western Front. I don't know anything about the source material. I didn't know it could, they, they, there was an English version that came out in 1930. I believe this is the first time a German filmmaker has made it. Am I right in saying I that? I think from what I saw, I think that's true. Yeah. And obviously, for, from my point of view, it's very interesting. It's a bit like when you watch Downfall, you're watching a film that's being made and it's being told through the eyes of the losing side, whereas, of course, most of the World War One films we see, where, you know, it's it, 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 it you're watching it as we are. It may, may or may not... The, Americans coming in and we're winning, but this is, you know, these are these guys are are losing. They are absolute cannon fodder, which we know from the First World War anyway. But what this does really well is it actually shows you trench warfare as opposed to people sort of sitting like Paul McCartney videos or maybe a little bit of Blackadder goes forth. <laughs> it's not people sitting around and looking at photographs of their loved ones and, and sort of bonding that way. I mean, these guys are getting blown up in the trenches. There are there are legs. It, it is visceral. I mean, it's like it's kind of you know it, it's a little bit like um. Steven Spielberg's... Was it in Private Ryan? Yeah, at the beginning of that, you know, sure. but imagine that for pretty much two hours and two and a half hours. Does it sacrifice some of the human elements for the kind of grisly shock or...? No, I don't think so. And for this, I think you can thank the cast, particularly, like I say, Felix Camera, he plays Paul, and then he makes really... And these are obviously, you know, I think it's pretty faithful to the book, and he befriend, well, he befriends an older soldier, Cat, or Stanislaus Kaczynski is the character's name, but they call him Cat, and, they, and I think thanks to those two... And they are the most incredible performances. Daniel Bruhl is probably the biggest name in this. He's an exec producer, but he plays the small role of Matthias Esberger, who's probably the most sort of sense. He's the one who's trying to bring an end to this, but he's surrounded by hawkish generals who just want to keep fighting. And I googled afterwards. They killed three thousand soldiers were killed between when they agreed the armistice. Um, you know, but but they wanted it to finish on the eleventh, on the eleventh, at the eleventh, you know, for whatever reason. And they there were six hours between it being signed and. They sent guys off just to go and just to die because there were people who wanted, you know, German generals who wanted to finish on a win because they'd seen yeah. their, their parents do that. I think, it, yeah, it was, it's really quite a spectacular film. For, for a film that's, like, like I mentioned, it's two and a half hours of pretty harsh brutality, yeah. um, does, it, does it hold your attention or does it 
does it kind of do you get fatigue after a while? No, I I thought I would. Like I say, I started watching it, and I thought I would do. And no, I I would. It, it kept me up and wrapped until like I say three a.m., which is no. That's no mean feat, particularly after a day where I had to watch Falling for Christmas and Black Panther and My Policeman. <laughs> so this was the absolute highlight. And yeah, all yeah, kudos to the to the actors in this. There 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 is because particularly Felix Camera playing Paul Burma at the beginning. He's he's got this amazing sort of fresh face and bright blue eyes, but as the film goes on, you know what he sees and what he ends up, he, you know what he ends up becoming and what he ends up doing because of war. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and particularly at this point in our own geopolitical time, mm. it's a strong statement it's making, and I believe it's um, Germany's submission to the Oscars, and it should be. Excellent! I can't wait to watch it. All Quiet on the Western Front is a certificate of fifteen, and it's streaming on Netflix. Cambridge One Hundred and Five Radio. Whether it's Cambridge United, City or Histon Town, From the Terraces brings you reaction as we follow all our local teams. In the main, to savour those moments and to create memories for supporters and, and players is a major thing for us. And delighted that we're connecting with the fans in the way that we are. Delighted that we were able to celebrate in that way because they're the sort of moments that stay with you forever. From the Terraces with Tim Armitage, Sunday at 1 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Listen live on Radio Player. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists. Or visit our website, cklg.co.uk. CKLG Accountants, your partner in business, your partner in life. Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, you're listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and here with me are Emma, Henry and Matthew. And we're halfway through our fortnightly coverage of all films, great and small, here in the studio. Now, uh... We're joining a young woman who's breaking all the rules and the fourth wall. Excuse me! Perhaps I should explain. My name is Enola Holmes. I started a detective agency. How old? You're a girl. Tell me. Yes. Might your brother be free? My brother? Well, I have not a single case. Sherlock Slatis seems to be vexing him. Is it true you find lost people? Yes. My sister. She disappeared a week ago. Based on the popular young adult series of books by Nancy Springer, Millie Bobby Brown returns as Sherlock and Mycroft's estranged sibling, Enola Holmes. This time, having set up her own agency, she's on the trail of a missing girl with yet more large-scale political mystery at its heart. Um, Henry, um, there's another one of these films. Um, <laughs> what's, what's the draw? Uh, this is a great question, because I was not drawn to the first one. I It, it came and it went, and I went, yeah, this is, this is not for me. I don't need this in my life. And then, you know... I'm doing the show this week, and we said, right, well, we're doing Enola Holmes too. And 
I, I do my homework for this show, but sometimes there's a there's a limit to what I will do. So I haven't seen the first one. I put myself through this one, and I also do not understand the draw. I guess there's a kind of, you know, in a lot of, like, films aimed at young adults or kids, there is this history of, you know, kind of, like, smart aleck kids where they're, they're kind of aspirational figures for the young people watching, where it's like, oh, cool, well, they're... They're my age, but they're like they're they're smarter or they're funnier or they kind of there's some sort of aspirational figure, which I think was the intent with Enola Holmes. What you actually get is this really quirksome lead who is always just kind of breaking the fourth wall and go like there's literally a moment at the start where it's you're probably wondering how I got here. And we do a little flashback and we go back. It is so self-aware that it's like oh yeah look see we're doing this and we're breaking this and that's that's why it's funny but then if you're still playing into those tropes that's not you doing anything interesting that's just you saying like Haha, see self-aware i don't understand why her breaking the fourth wall is in this film at all i just kind of i don't know the whole time i was watching this i just wanted escape for the actors i liked I was watching this and thinking, I, I hope Henry Cavill gets some, some better employment soon because he he lights up the screen every time he's on. I'm like, I'll I'll watch a Sherlock Holmes film where he's Sherlock. That sounds great to me. And David Fewless is just... I love him so much. He's the perfect, perfect slime ball. And every time he just kind of creeps onto any screen and goes, oh, well, hello there, with his, his lovely accent, I just am suddenly back in. And then every time he disappears... I just tag straight back out. Well, yeah, Matt, um, I can't have a feel that, that Henry Cavill as Sherlock, especially for this particular moment for Cavill, he's, he's, he's quite trending quite often now. Um, I feel like he's really the draw here, which uh, I would say massively overshadows the female independence of the whole premise. I think I'd prefer maybe like a young Miss Marple or something like that. Um, is is the Enola Holmes character layered enough to carry her own stories? Well, I think that that's the the central problem is that Sherlock Holmes is just a more interesting character than Enola. So why are we focused on Enola? I mean, Henry Cavill's brilliant, but I did feel he was almost distractingly cast because he has a sort of Superman bod. He's incredibly charming, but Sherlock's meant to be this kind of... Pugilist. <laughs> well, he's sort of portrayed as a, a drunk and a kind of someone who's who doesn't... He is not confident with social interaction, but Henry Cavill comes along and he's sort of incredibly cool and charming and looks like he spends 12 hours a day in the gym, which he probably does. But... Uh, yeah, Millie Bobby Brown, she's really, really annoying. Like, I don't know if we can <laughs> correctly state how just how annoying she is. I think with the fourth wall breaking, you have to have really good, sharp, funny dialogue to get away with it. And a lot of the dialogue in this f felt almost joke adjacent. Like it's delivered like a joke, but I was didn't actually laugh, I think, at all, apart from maybe when... Uh, David Thewlis hits around the head with a hook at the end, but that's probably just me. Uh, Emma, it's directed by Harry Bradbury, who owned the uh, the Fleabag series, so that might explain a lot of the fourth wall breaking. Um, personally, I think, unless you're a gremlin, don't look at the camera, please. Um, does this gimmick help endear us to the Enola character for you? No, not at all. Um, 
I, the first one, I, in some ways I preferred the first one because I think I watched it and I thought, oh, if I had a teenage, if I had teenage daughters, couldn't get any of my kids to watch the first one with me about three years ago, but if I thought, if I had teenage daughters, this is kind of, this is kind of spunky and fun and, you know, this is, like, it was out on Netflix and it seemed, but I don't know why they've, they've helped me to go back and make another one. And the problem with, well, I have a massive issue with Millie Bolly. She has the most nasal voice, Millie Bolly, Bobby Brown, and there is so much of it in this. It's like she hasn't been trained how to actually talk properly, which you don't really notice in Stranger Things, obviously, because at 11, she doesn't have to say a lot. So she has this incredibly nasal voice on top of not a very good script and on top of really not being, I don't think, nearly as charming as both she and Harry Bradbury, as a, as a director, seem to think she is. And it's a bit more complicated because she's older in this one. She's obviously old enough to set up her... She doesn't really look that different from the first one, so I was trying to figure out how old she's meant to be in this. I guess about 18. And she somehow has set up her own... um detective agency and there's obviously a love story with um Tewksbury, who returns from the first one the, yes. the missing viscount that she find it found in the first Marquis. one Marquis <laughs> it's like a Barbara Cartland novel um yeah I'm 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 with Henry in that it, it I the bits with Henry Carver were probably my favorite bits I actually thought that David Thewlis they were a little lazy with him I just thought they kind of let him just run and do his David Thewlis stick shtick which is great but I would have perhaps liked to have seen a little maybe more of him it just it's really long as well, or it felt really long. I don't know how long the running time is, but it's two hours and ten. But it felt like t- it felt longer than Wakanda Forever. It felt like two and a half hours, and and at the end, I was disappointed in myself as well because I understand this is all the the premise of it is this girl has gone missing from the match factory, and then it all turns into a big political sort of cover up because they are they're, they're using cheap phosphorus to make the matches and yada yada. But this is all based, I believe, on a true on the first women striking ever in the age. And so at the end, and, and I thought, well, maybe I should have liked that more. Because, but, yeah, but why? I mean, that's a silly thing to say. It's all very muddled, though, isn't it? I mean, it was only at the end when I realised that at the start they put up a flashcard saying this is all based on a true story. And then I thought, saw that and then forgot about it. And then at the end they say, oh, yeah, this was the largest ever industrial action by women. And I thought, oh, OK, so this was based on something. But that doesn't really add anything no. to the movie. And also they throw, in, and they throw in Moriarty as well. So like you say, you have almost <laughs> got two stories going on with Sherlock and with Enola. And they throw in some Moriarty app, which is ridiculous. Um, I think you said, Jorgen, it seems like every puzzle in this has to be an anagram. <laughs> well, I was just about to ask. The first film, it's just anagrams. It's just everything's <laughs> an anagram for something it's just people moving words backwards Anola is alone backwards so I guess that's her stick in this one I was glad there wasn't as much anagramness in it but were I mean were there mysteries worth solving here was anyone guessing was everyone curious to not really it? I, I just, it was just very muddled I mean the case with the matchstick girls was something that you could sort of kind of get behind it's like okay so people are dying because of the cheap phosphorus there's a mystery here we can, we can follow it but Sherlock's case that Henry Cavill was investigating, I, d- I didn't really understand what that was. I mean, he has a sort of board with bits of thread and there's bank accounts and money's going back and forth. But w- what's actually going on here? And he's going, oh, I'm very confused by this. I can't figure it out. But um, I'm sure it's an anagram. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I don't know, I kind of, your Miss, young Miss Marple thing, Lorcan, has got me thinking that, like, actually... Maybe this whole Enola Holmes thing would work better as a like series of like thirty minute TV episodes, where it's just like it's Enola and her brother. They've got like some case pops up. They're like, ah, what is this? And they solve the case. They have a little blast. Bam, bam, bam. You know, everyone has a good time. Half an hour. Because this is the thing. I think the thing we're all most complaining about is how like torturously long this feels. And if it was like half an hour, we'd probably actually be a lot nicer to it. And so 
I think maybe, you know, if Netflix are listening to the Cambridge 105 radio, <laughs> the thing to do with this franchise is to go, is to transition it yeah. into TV and just do like little 30 minute mini mysteries that That's kind of. That's an excellent yeah. idea. I might be quite charmed by Millie Bobby Brown for 30 minutes, whereas two hours <laughs> and 10 minutes of her, and also all the flashbacks to like Helen Bonham Carter just, you know, being all mm. feminism. Feminism is the way ahead. My daughter's going to be so independent. But there was really, and then, but. Helen Bonham just seems to be running around the around the country, chucking or chucking sort of explosives at uh, explosives <laughs> around. And then we were talking about as well. Mycroft's gone completely. I mean, Mycroft has quite a key part in the first one. And Mycroft, they don't explain where he's gone. They don't explain why he's not in it unless they did, and I missed it. Yeah, they kind of trade out his chauvinistic screen time for David Thewlis, I suppose. Um, I mean, I agree with Henry. I mean, I'm going to love anything that's shorter. So <laughs> <laughs> kind of X-Files where, like, Sherlock just chucks the cases he doesn't want to know. Be like, yeah. um, but it's, like, it's a high-adventure costume drama with A-listers. Is, is this suited for streaming? Do you think this would have done better in cinemas? Potentially. I mean, I, I think you would potentially enjoy this more if you saw it on the big screen. It did, it did feel to me like... A cinematic movie. I thought it did look quite expensive, mm. and it's certainly got lots of big names in it. And some of the performances are quite fun. I mean, like Henry Cavill's really good in it, even though I think he's miscast. David Thewlis, I think, is brilliant. Uh, Helen Bonham Carter's doing her Helen Bonham Helen Bonham her thing. She's quite good. HBC. Yeah, uh, yeah. Th- th- there are things to enjoy, even if it's too long. Even if the script doesn't quite land even if the storyline's a bit muddled. And I guess I'm trying to work out and who is it aimed I, I It does have its fans. I, th- I think I think And are they are they teenagers is it is it young I, adults? I think there it does have the maybe maybe it's because of the books or maybe it's because of Millie Butter Brown but these films definitely do have an audience evidently. I mean, Lorcan and I have now. a colleague she's you know very enthusiastic said this one's even better than the first one so like there are you know adults are enjoying these films this isn't just something that is for kids there's there's an appeal that you know that we aren't seeing. Well, Sherlock, I guess anything to do with Holmes has has an enduring appeal, right, for many, many people. But I would agree with Matt heartily. Hardly, yeah, it does look expensive. It does it, uh, and compared to some straight to Netflix. It looks like a movie. Starry yeah, ones, yeah. <laughs> which haven't looked like a movie. I'm looking at you, young Adam. Is it young Adam? So I always call it, I always the Adam, Adam Project. The Adam Project. Oh. I'm looking at you. Oh. This at least, you, this yeah, this looked like a movie that had some thought put into it and some thought put into the design of it, and that. So there you go. That finishes on a. Positive note. Yeah, it has an audience. You might be one of them. Watch and find out. It did remind me a lot of the Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movies. Um, oh, the kind of like edgy, kind of more yeah. poppy kind of. It, in the, it reminded me in the sense that I was thinking I'd rather be watching the Guy Ritchie <laughs> Sherlock Holmes movies. But, uh, but hey ho, yeah. here I am. Uh, you know the Holmes is a stupid twelve A, and it's streaming on Netflix. Uh, now onto uh, continuing a rather loose tact. Um, it's never too early to get into the Christmas spirit, right? <laughs> When people look at me, all they see is the spoiled daughter of the hotel magnet. I'm coming in, coming in hot. I just want people to remember me for more than my last name. My lady. Where exactly are we going? Sierra Belmont. <gasps> the last year with you has been truly magical. <gasps> Will you marry me? Oh, Tad! Sheriff, could you please tell her to let me out of here? First, we need to figure out who you are. What do you mean, who I am? My name is... 
Lindsay Lohan plays engaged heiress Sarah Belmont, who, after a skiing incident, is diagnosed with amnesia. Cord Overstreet plays Jack Russell, because of course he does, uh, a handsome lodge owner who must take care of the bewildered royal, or heiress to a, um, a, a fortune, I should say. Um, Emma, the Netflix Christmas film machine is a large part of people's Christmas downtime now. It's, a, it's almost a staple. Um, did this get you into the festive spirit? I'm not going to lie, Lorcan, maybe it did. <laughs> I mean, I presume that Sierra Beaumont is, is essentially Paris Hilton because she's heiress to an enormous hotel um hotel fortune yes. and I, I and the the picture when she does get engaged to tad fairchild who's the third of this love triangle played by george young who hadn't seen in anything and i enjoyed him um when they get engaged it reminded me very much i think of when paris hilton actually did get engaged because <laughs> it was i believe a topper <laughs> mountain and these kind of you know pictures are showing um it this i watched this this may be too much information for the Cambridge Channel Shed listeners but i feel like you are our friends i watched this in the bath with a bottle of wine and it suited me down <laughs> to the ground I'm not, it was nice it's nice to see lindsay lohan back i mean yeah. Remember, she was such a breakthrough star with Disney, with Freaky Friday and then with Mean Girls. Parent trap. A parent trap, of course. And then she felt, you know, she did fall off the rails, personally and professionally, but she's come back with the most phenomenal... She must have gone, actually, to Nicole Kidman's wig maker, I think, for the undoing, because <laughs> she has the most phenomenal red hair going on. There's so much of it, so lustrous. And it's nice, it was nice to see her back. She has some good comic timing, she has some good physical comedy. Cordover Street... What a name. <laughs> Who I only know from Glee. I don't know if anyone else remembers. He was he had a brief part in Glee way, way back at the beginning. And he is, you know, this is Netflix has taken over from Hallmark, hasn't it? So it's tradition this is the absolute traditional story. He is like a penniless kind of craftsman of some kind, and she is, you know, the rich spoiler, like we said, Christmas overboard. Although there are many issues we could take with the fact that for a penniless hotel owner, his hotels seem to have an awful lot of fairy lights. Rather grand, yeah. Yeah. But no, I, it, it, yeah, it got me feeling Christmassy. Well, Matt, like, like Emma says, it's, it's maybe not the most original story, not completely unfamiliar. Um, were there any sparks of brilliance for you? I actually think there were. I mean, I, I was absolutely ready to hate this and really slate it, but it, it did win me over, if, if I'm being honest. I mean, I watched the trailer and I just thought, why, why am I putting myself through this? But then it started off and uh, a young child's Christmas wish is for Lindsay Lohan to experience a massive traumatic head injury <laughs> <laughs> such that her poor, uh, charming, terrible businessman dad can have a can have a wife again and so that that was funny and the when she slides backwards off the i don't know if anyone else caught this but when she slides backwards off the mountain there was almost a sort of diehard hans gruber falling off the yeah, tower yeah. moment which i appreciated nice christmas reference uh yeah this this movie's just fun i mean i think you know if you're gonna like this purely from the name and the cast uh, the cast were great they had fantastic chemistry much better than in my policeman i think just swap the cast. <laughs> Just swap the cast. <laughs> Harry Styles would do much better as a kind of hopeless hotel owner than, than he does as a torture. I know, he'd be a great Tad watering through the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Tad was brilliant. And oh, yeah, a real spark of brilliance for me was just a bit of uh, casual bisexualness from the character of Tad. You don't get many characters in, in movies, especially not mainstream ones, who are bisexual. So to have some bi visibility in a way that's completely not plot important at all is is good although we were all saying how much we miss tad though right when he wasn't on screen oh. when it wasn't tad because he also gets stuck obviously and he ends up in some kind of fishing hut yes with, with, an, ralph. with ralph and we were missing him greatly <laughs> yeah i just watched up to that bit this morning and then i had to leave for the show uh but i mean henry 
uh, hearing the premise, uh, a child could tell you how it's probably going to end. Were there any wrenches thrown in along the way? Any, any Anything different? Uh, like, no, not really. The thing is, you know, it's bad, obviously. Like, <laughs> like Matt said, you kind of, you're like, oh, so it's a Lindsay Lohan Christmas film, and you either go, ugh, or you go, yeah. And that's kind of, you're not going to change throughout the film. Um, you know, it's got the, the quirks where it's like, oh, we've got this woman who has, like, traumatic head injury and has complete amnesia. Let's just make her, you know, work for complete no pay in this hotel for a bit. And, I mean, like, we really cannot overstate how wonderful the Tad and Ralph plot is. It's this, you know, these two guys hanging out, these little little rat men in their little little fishing hut, just guys being dudes. And you know, George Young, I was, I was like, he's familiar. I know him from somewhere. He was in Malignant, so he seems to have was this he the thing. Cop in Malignant? He was the cop in Malignant. Oh, he seems to have this thing for just like weird bit roles that kind of make these weird movies. Um, like, yeah, it's you know if you if you like it already, but like it is. We've done so many, like, terrible, terrible Netflix movies on this show. And this is... It is bad, but it's kind of sincerely bad. This one knows it's bad, which is not what we usually get from yeah. Netflix movies. Also, it's lovely and short. but And, and oh. it, it, it threw back... There was a very <laughs> throw, obviously, in a Netflix um, advert there when she wakes up for Ugh. the first time to, to the last... <laughs> The one that they released first last Christmas, which is a castle for Christmas with Brooke Shields and Carrie Carrie Ulis. And compared to that, this is a joyous affair. <laughs> a castle Christmas was, was really, really bad. Well, yeah, there is there is something nice about as soon as the film comes on, you're just like, Oh, this isn't trying to be anything. I can just mm-hmm. have some nice Christmas fluff. Is it is it is it just silly Christmas fluff? Well, is there I, anything else going on here? I get, no, I don't think there's anything else going on, but I was gonna say <laughs> I mean, don't, don't be ridiculous. But um I was gonna say I think it's filmed in Utah, and I did think that they used the landscape. I thought again, it, it again, it looked like it had some money put into it, maybe or not. Mm. No one thinks that. I and think the CGI no... was a bit too ropey. To... Well, it was ropey when she fell off the mountain. But <laughs> I thought that they they looked like they filmed it in more than one set, though. Like they had at least mm. three. You know, there were there was. I don't know. But it, it did look like they though. filmed it on sets. <laughs> that, that is true. Uh, yeah, which, okay. is, which is an improvement from a lot of Netflix films. To be <laughs> but also, I don't know if it's really fair or meaningful to call this movie bad. It sets out to do something. It does it, it does it well, it put a smile on the people's faces who it was meant to put a smile on. Yeah. What more do you want? It's the, Netflix is a new Hallmark, right? Well, like I said, like, we're, we're dipping our toe. I don't think anyone's overly familiar with the Christmas, maybe Emma a bit more than the rest of us. No, but... you need Ash on. We need Ash yeah, on need for that. that. <laughs> Ash is a Christmas and Christmas movie devotee. Because it's such a big trend now, I think it was worth dipping our toes in. Will anyone be watching more having watched it for the show? Well, you know, there's a lot of bars to be had between now and Christmas <laughs> and a lot of wine to be drunk, so maybe I will. <laughs> yeah, these are the kind of films that, you know, I'm not going to watch this alone, kind of go, what am I watching tonight? Oh, yeah, I'm going to watch, you know, <laughs> The Christmas Switch 50. I'm like, this is the kind of thing that you're going to kind of just settle down with someone and you'd be like, should we just should we just put this on? Yeah, and it is it is so completely harmless. Actually, it'll be interesting to see because, of course, there's a big Christmas movie coming out this week on Apple TV Plus, isn't there? On Friday, which is Spirited with Ryan Reynolds mm. and Will Ferrell, and I have not very—I I have a horrible sinking feeling about that one. That it's just not going to be—I uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, everyone's hoping for another Elf, obviously, yeah. and uh, you know, mm. Ryan Reynolds is everyone's favourite person. But hmm. I've got a horrible feeling that it's going to be so smug and just not. So maybe this could end up being better. I'll report back. Well, yeah, everyone <laughs> can find out on the next show. Uh, <laughs> Falling for Christmas uh, is a certificate PG and it's streaming on Netflix. And now, the end is nighy.
from when I was a child. What I wanted was to be a gentleman. Life just crept up on me. One day preceding the next. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Mr. Williams. Not happy, not unhappy. A small wonder I didn't notice. Mr. Williams, Dr. Orsina. The results have come back. It's never easy, this. Adapted from Akira Kurosawa's film Akiru and written by Kazuro Ishiguro, a best-selling novelist of Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go, Living tells the story of Mr. Williams, played by Bill Nighy, a proper gentleman who discovers he has a short time left to live and pursues various avenues to feel alive and discover what he's been missing all this time. Henry, it's, it's, it's not quite Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> um, it's less about living life to its full and more about the kind of nature of happiness. Um, but how does it make you feel? I, I just thought this film was absolutely marvellous. I really... I don't really have a bad word to say about it. And I think the interesting thing is is that you kind of go into it and you, you hear the plot of, like, OK, it's about this old guy and he hasn't done anything with his life and then he finds out he's dying. And you go, oh, oh no, not one of these. You know, you think this is going to be just, like, so downbeat and upsetting. And I kind of got that vibe from some of the people in my screening. I found it really life-affirming. It's about, you know... It's about living. It's about making the most of this this fleeting little existence we have on the planet. It's that weirdly kind of Vonnegutian instinct to just, like, treasure those that are around you. And I think in a weird way, it's like a companion piece with uh, Banshees of Inisherin. They're both kind of films about, like, the dangers of stoicism and how, you know, if we, we sit around and we just bottle up our emotions, then that's when the bad things happen. And actually... The best things on these British Isles is when we kind of let those emotions out and we do tell the people around us what we think about them, how much how much they mean to us. And I just, the whole time I had a smile on my face, I had a little tear in my eye. I was just so charmed with this entire film. More charmed than me. Um, <laughs> I... It's adapted from a Japanese film. Um, it's uh, directed by a South... African director, um, so there's it's a very unique take on a kind of uh, British period drama. Um, I I really liked the first half. It does kind of ha- it does feel like a, a, a international film because it's not quite paced the way kind of Western audiences are used to that kind of pacing. I like that the first half is kind of episodic and it's like different ways of exploring different ways of living your life. But then there's a very harsh jump and then. It becomes kind of a different film in the second half. Did you was you satisfied by that? Do you think it flowed well? Yeah, that worked for me. Um, I haven't seen Akiru, but I've been told that it has a similar structure to this one, which kind of makes sense with what you're saying. Um, but no, I kind of the jump at first is quite, you know, it, 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 you go, oh, hang on, what's happened? But then it, it goes back and it fills in the pieces, and you feel quite satisfied with it. I just, as a piece of like construction, I am so enamoured with this film. I genuinely think, and this is a big claim, this might have some of the best cinematography of the year. Not only is every shot so completely beautiful, but it's so laced with purpose, just the where the camera is placed, and you think, oh, what's, you know, why is that wall there? Why have they put those characters there? And it's all to do with just telling the themes and exploring the characters just through, like, simple shot composition. This film is so well put together that, you know... I think even if you don't quite understand those things, you're still subconsciously going to really appreciate that. 
Um, just to kind of end, I think I think the only reason Bill Nighy's character stood out for me is because he's the only one who's got more than one dimension going on. He's he's the only one who's kind of making any change with his life or has any layered. I found all the side characters very one note. Were you satisfied with like how everything kind of comes together to build up Mr. Williams's life? Yeah, I do. I think there's there's a way that certain characters are presented, like the opening springs to mind, where it's kind of asking you to use the characters as like a lens through which you see uh, Bill Nye's character and use him as a way to see them, the kind of characters who are presented as like parallels of him. And I think that's actually a really good way of adding more dimensions to those characters, saying if this character continues along that track, this could be him, and actually, he's able to like put them on a different and more fulfilling path. Well, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly been popular. Um, it's one to it's one for the emotions for sure. Uh, Living is Certificate Twelve A, and it's screening at all three Cambridge cinemas. Um, much like Mr. Williams, that is all the time we have. Uh, please join us on Saturday, twenty sixth November, when we'll be served a feast of horrors by Ralph Rafe Fines in the menu. Luca Guadagnino and Timothee Chalamet reunite for the grisly romance bones and all, and Re- Matilda returns to the big screen this time in musical form. Till then, it's goodbye from our reviewers. Goodbye. Goodbye. That's goodbye. goodbye from me. Cambridge 105 Radio.